Today's On Shuffle episode is brought to you by Belvedere Vodka. Produced in one of the world's longest-running distilleries, Belvedere Vodka is the world's finest all-natural vodka. Crafted by a collective of master distillers, Belvedere Vodka is made with non-GMO Polish rye, pure water, and no additives. Recognized for quality, Belvedere Vodka was named the ISC World Vodka Producer of the Year in 2015, 2016, and 2017. Thus, we're very excited to have Belvedere Vodka as a sponsor of On Shuffle. Enjoy a delicious cocktail with Belvedere Vodka today, and remember to always drink responsibly. Welcome back. To another episode of On Shuffle. I'm your host, Micah Peters, a staff writer at The Ringer, and I'm going to be completely transparent with you. It's going to be a very awkward proposition of an episode for us today. Uh, on Monday, uh, controversial rapper XXXTentacion was shot and killed, which brought up a lot of uncomfortable questions uh, for fans and critics alike. Uh, this week, I'm going to be joined by my colleague, Lindsay Zolaz, to discuss the fraught light and legacy of XXXTentacion. And then on the second half of the episode, it's going to be quite the change of pace. I'm going to speak to my other colleague, Robert Mays, about the band The Gaslight Anthem, who released their seminal album 10 years ago this year, uh, The 59 Sound. Uh, he wrote a great well-reported oral history of the album and the band, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, let's get into the episode. On Monday, XXXTentacion was shot and killed in Broward County, Florida. He was 20 years old. He was also three months removed from Question Mark, his sophomore effort and first number one album. And as a point of disclosure, this isn't easy at all to talk about. His star rose amid detailed reports of truly appalling criminal charges. Domestic battery by strangulation, false imprisonment, and aggravated battery of a pregnant woman. Still, his music, which orbited themes of depression and anxiety, deeply resonated with a younger generation of fans. Neither he nor his victims truly had their day in court, which makes his passing uniquely difficult. He leaves behind a complicated legacy that isn't easy to process. In fact, there don't seem to be any good ways to do it, but... Here to help me try to find one is my colleague, Lindsay Zolads. How are you doing today, Lindsay? I'm all right. How are you? I am verklempt, actually. Mm. I guess my first question is, what was your initial reaction to hearing the news? Or how do you process something like this? Yeah, I was. I felt nauseated when I heard. I uh, Probably like a lot of people, I saw the TMZ story maybe about an hour before he was actually pronounced dead. And... I was really just hoping that what they were reporting wasn't true and that um, there would be some other outcome. But then, I guess around 5.30, um, he was pronounced dead, and I just felt a pit in my stomach. And, you know, we're going to talk about all of the ways in which this is a really complicated matter. But I mean, it's an extremely difficult thing to talk about. There, there only seems to be, like, wrong ways to react to it. <laughs> true. Yeah. As as most people on the internet will tell you uh, <laughs> today, yeah. but I don't wish a death at twenty on anybody. No matter, you know, I don't know. It's it's hard to talk in absolutes about it. But I was I just felt a real visceral sadness, and I mostly felt sad for his fans because I think that one of the appeals of his music was that he was able to 
for whatever reason, really connect to a certain kind of troubled young person that was maybe depressed and having some trouble talking about it, understanding it. And I, so I more felt an empathy for the fan base, um, even though even expressing that I think is a little controversial because there were things that being a fan of X meant you were overlooking. Right. I mean, like going back to that truly wild No Jumper interview, the first Mm -hmm. one, um, where he was just talking about having a cult fan base. And that means that if you support me, that means you support everything I do. And Mm. the fervor which with the fan base defended him against any and all detraction. Like, I mean, regardless of how well reported it might have been, what the facts might have actually been, even saying, like, feeling empathy towards people that chose to cast their lot in with, so Mm -hmm. to speak, with uh, Triple X Tentacion, feels like it's almost kind of confrontational to say that you feel bad for the people that lost an icon today. Yeah, and I that was sort of the first thing that came into my mind to tweet. And, you know, a lot of people agreed, but some people really didn't. And were like, how can you support um, his fans? And it's so complicated, but I understand. I'm just kind of, I'm always looking out for like the young depressed kids. And I think a lot of what we're seeing on a larger societal scale right now, it shows that people don't. And there's a lot going on to be sad and depressed about in the world. And I I do think that we have to look pretty seriously at, at the kinds of music and culture that the next generation is wanting to consume. And I think we can be critical about it, but I think we can't deny that it exists and deny X's popularity, which was really just on the rise. And I think in some ways at the very least, like in the days after his death, we're going to see an uptick in plays and sales of his music. And I do think that his legacy after death is going to be an interesting one. Yeah. Still going to be very complicated. Yeah. I guess, well, the the first taste of of uh, XXX Tentacion's music that anybody really got was this SoundCloud Lucy that sounded horrible, like recorded in a like in a dumpster. Mm-hmm. Horrible, called uh, "Look at Me." She said, "One bitch, I do." You put a gun on my mess. I put a hole in your parents. I just got lean on my zombies. I got a Uzi, no Uzi. Fuck me, look at me. Fuck me, yeah. Look at me, look at me, look at me, yeah. Fuck me, yeah. Just kind of like this knockdown, drag out record about doing crazy, unrepented things, I guess. Um, and like it's kind of like for attention. And then once he had everyone's attention, uh, kind of really shifted the gears with uh, his self released album, 17, which had the song Jocelyn Flores on it, which was not bad enough to dismiss outright. Mm-hmm. 
It was Megan Garvey that wrote in her Pitchfork review, if you can stomach it, it is interesting in a purely critical sense to imagine receiving 17 X's first official album on unmarked CD or an anonymous zip file, which is kind of like the, the level that you kind of had to meet his music at if you were going to approach it critically, I guess. Yeah, except that we never get things like that. And, you know, like there's just so much context immediately all the time at your fingertips that I think it's a little bit nostalgic to to kind of want that. Right. I mean, they, there's no boat that is safe from, I guess, like the goings on of the world, so to speak. For sure. And it's so easy to just type whatever kind of keywords in and, and find what you need to know about this. But yeah, that song is so interesting, Jocelyn Flores, because it's really like an acoustic guitar-driven song. It's not even really a rap song, I don't think. It sounds more like Elliot Smith than, you know, than like what you would then look at me, for yeah. sure. It just sounds like the work of a totally different artist. So I think there was a real diversity of genres that he could work in, that which was exciting, and genres that you don't normally think of as being compatible with each other. I think a lot of that had to do with him being a product of the streaming era. And he was of a generation that listens to music really fluidly and doesn't think about genre or barriers. So that was that was the song off of 17 was really interesting. And it, it charted really high on Spotify. It was sort of the one that people picked out to be, you know, the single. Yeah, I guess he became even more realized in his genre experiments with uh, his second album, which was which debuted at number one, mm-hmm. question mark. And the record I'm thinking specifically about is Sad. It was starting to get quite a bit of radio play, too. I think mm-hmm. I think it cracked the top 10 on Billboard. It was, you know, it's that song sounds a lot like EXO Tour Life, the Lil Vert song that was so popular last year. It's kind of this, it's like a bouncy song about suicide, which is a weird trend in the world right now. Um, but it definitely, it tapped into like a world where EXO Tour Life can be popular. I see how sad is like a natural kind of follow-up hit to that. Despite the hook being out and out abuser logic. It's, yeah. And it's not it's not really possible to just throw your hands up and say there is no ethical consumption under under capitalism or whatever. Like it's you have to grapple with it. You have to grapple with the fact that those reports exist and their photos exist and the comments that they leave under his accusers' Instagram photos exists and the GoFundMe page exists. All of this is, like, happening. Yeah, and also I think you have to add every time he's denied any of these charges or allegations, he's done so in a really ugly way and he's said— In a very un—yeah, very unrepentant way. Unrepentant and just kind of put more hate and ugliness out there in the denial, um, which doesn't— didn't make him appear like someone who had the sort of empathy for his victim. You know, they, it didn't, it wasn't a good look. I mean, like, it's difficult to know what to do with that in the wake of 
everything. Like what? Like how do you even confront that critically? What What about what were your first questions about the X phenomenon? I guess, and then how many of them have been answered, or are these more sort of like lingering generational questions about what fans will and won't accept? Yeah, I I think I was avoiding listening to him for a little while because I had. I was aware of the allegations before I ever heard his music. Mm -hmm. But they're not allegations, but he's been charged on quite a few things. I mean, like, it was basically his first rise to prominence happened while he was sitting in in jail. I mean, like, he was initially charged with committing home invasion, robbery, and aggravated battery with a firearm in 2015, according to court records. And it's just kind of like he's benefited from hip-hop's thing about outlaw mythology. It's a genre that, at the risk of oversimplifying, kind of programmatically celebrates its outlaws and collateral damage. But it felt different and, and, and curious in a way that our editor-in-chief, Sean Fennessy, wrote on the website today in a really good piece that you should go check out. It was just kind of like, the first line is that rap has never really encountered a triple X tentacion before. But I think it's also, he was coming up in this climate of after the Me Too movement and at a time when we are, as a society, taking accusers and victims more seriously than we used to. And I, and I think there's a larger audience to ready to hear them out. And there's also, you know, the internet and streaming culture and social media is so much of what was responsible for X's rise, but it's also been responsible for more people to be aware of the charges against him, of his history, and for that background information to get out there and his victim's voice to get out there too. She, in the widely circulated profile from the Miami New Times that was published just a couple weeks ago of X, the author gives equal weight to the victim and to his voice. Like she interviewed both of them. And I think it's just a product of the time that we're living in that more people are willing to listen to her. Of course, there's also people trolling her and... Harassing her at her job. Yeah, harassing her at work. And so, as ever, it's a double-edged sword. But I do think the context in which he came up and just the the kind of national conversation that we've been having, while a lot of that doesn't extend to music in the same way that we've seen the accountability in the film industry, I do think that everything just sort of came to a head in his story because of these opposing forces. Right. It made basically being confronted with that TMZ report. So this is the way that I encountered the the information. I saw a tweet about it first mm-hmm. from somebody that I sort of Twitter know. <laughs> and then I went on about doing something else for the next 15 minutes and then eventually saw a video that was retweeted on my timeline which was kind of like, you know, this kind of blanched and grainy video of somebody walking around a Lambo with the with the butterfly doors up and a lifeless body in the front seat and it was just kind of like it's tough to it's tough to really do anything with that. There's no roadmap mm-hmm. for that sort of for being confronted with something like that. There's no way to process that in the time it would take to craft a tweet to say to send condolences or properly castigate the person that like I mean or or make assumptions about what's going to happen to his eternal soul or whatever I mean like mm-hmm. there's there's just doesn't seem to be 
any correct way to approach the situation because immediately after stuff like that happened, I mean, what were the discussions that you were seeing online? It was stuff like either you were celebrating the death too much or not celebrating enough. It didn't seem Mm -hmm. like there was any sort of middle ground. Yeah, and maybe there's just nothing good to tweet about it. There's just (laughs) nothing nothing good to tweet about it. Yeah, but at the same time, it was even like you said, the way the news of his death broke and the way that pretty graphic video of his body was was going around Twitter, like you said, just on your timeline without you clicking on something and necessarily wanting to see that, that was very much a product of the internet culture that birthed him, you know, and, and that made him so popular was just the way that this information traveled, the kind of information and images that you wouldn't see, you know, in a more mainstream context the way that it was circulating and the way people were kind of talking about it really before he was pronounced dead even just felt like all the worst parts of social media in one moment. Yeah. Everything felt too soon or too calloused or too... Too out there. Too out there. And then you were forced to reckon with all of these things at once. There was Kanye tweeting about how much of an expiration X was to him. And then you had J. Cole tweeting about how sad it is to have somebody with limitless potential taken from you this soon. It was a lot to take in because then you also had to think about not even a whole month and a half ago, Kendrick Lamar and the TDE camp said that they were going to pull their music from Spotify behind the hateful conduct policy that Spotify had employed that took triple X off of their curated playlists. Yeah, I I was really against the way that that Spotify policy was rolled out. I think a lot of people were, even though the intentions were good. I think with an artist like him, and, you know, these are new waters that we're navigating in the way that information is available to us now on the internet. I'm sure if we knew as much as we know today about artists in the past, there would be a lot more, you know, complications, lines in the sand that you would have to draw. I feel now it's my responsibility to know as much as I can, to read the accounts from his victim, even though it was very unpleasant to do so. I I feel, you know, you kind of have a responsibility. I definitely do as a critic. I think listeners do too. But I don't want a corporation like Spotify drawing that line for me mm-hmm. and telling me what is moral and amoral and and what kind of the line is. And, um, you know, as we saw, like the line that they were drawing had suspiciously few white people, <sighs> if any, you know. it. So I think anytime you're putting those sorts of moral decisions in the hands of a company that already is immoral in a lot of ways to musicians. I didn't want any of that. So I I just thought the whole thing was a mess and seemed inevitable that he would be back on um, on their playlist. Let's go back and talk a little bit about his larger impact or why this is a discussion that needs to be had. Because he was part of a, and you wrote about this actually on the site, but more kind of like this contrast between him and Lil Peep who passed in November. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about how he became such a thing that 
you know, like was a, a topic that you either be, had to be hot or cold on and you had to have an opinion on it, on it. Yeah, I first really started listening to him. Um, I guess it was about a year ago when I wrote a piece. Um, I think it was called All the Young Sad Boys that was just about sort of contrasting like emo of of my <laughs> teen years and this kind of new crop of SoundCloud rappers that were pulling from emo and rap rock and a lot of like maligned genres the way that X and Lil Peep and a lot of their contemporaries do. So I was looking at that and just the connection to the sort of masculine sadness of what we think of when we think of emo music. And that piece um, has aged really interestingly in less than a year because I it was when Peep was alive. It was obviously when X was alive. And the third artist I wrote about was brand new, the emo band. And not long after I wrote that, allegations of sexual misconduct came out against the lead singer of, of soliciting pictures from minors. And so I was looking back at that piece today and was like, this, everything has changed. And yet, I think tying all these things together, there was some impending doom over all of that. And, and I think just the the ties of like depression and abuse and the dark corners of the psyche that these artists are trying to explore and like aestheticize. Sean's piece that was published today was really smart and just in contrasting like two of what seemed like, for better or worse, were kind of the harbingers of this new generation of rappers are dead now. And they're, and Peep was, I think, 19 when he died and X was 20. And so there is kind of this weird void, I think, that they're going to leave behind. There was a lot of people that felt that they had a lot of promise, that they were this marker of what's next. And I am really curious how their deaths are going to impact that. And Sean rightly kind of contrasted it with, you know, we're getting this wave of like the 40-year-old rappers and 40-plus uh, with Kanye and Pusha T and Nas and Jay-Z all sort of putting out records that had a lot more resources behind them than Peep and X did in the music they released. And I don't know, I, I hope that other artists and I hope artists who, you know, use their fame more responsibly can step up and fill that void because I, I do just think it's going to be interesting to watch that space in the next year or so with, you know, two of the most promising, quote unquote, young rappers gone all of a sudden. It's weird. Yeah. What is there to be taken away in a situation like this? Because looking at X's background, say, for instance, if you look into it at all, it's just kind of like this really tragic story of mm -hmm. an absent father and a mother that didn't really want him acting out to get her attention in often violent ways. It seemed like it was going towards a violent end, but there was yeah. sort of maybe a little hope towards the end there for maybe J. Cole knew something that I didn't for there to be some sort of reconciliation for him to fix his life, so to speak. And now there's just kind of there all there will ever be is unfulfilled potential or unfinished atonement, whatever you want to call it. Is there anything positive to be taken away from this about his life and legacy? Well, I do think that's what made a lot of this music so complicated to reckon with is that, you know, you had these 
horrendous acts of violence that you couldn't shake out of your mind, while at the same time, a lot of the messaging of his music was almost like super earnestly posy and even the the video that is getting shared a lot today of his his Instagram story from a while back when he kind of was saying, like, if I am to die tragically, like, I want to have inspired the youth. Worst thing comes to worst, I f- die a tragic death or some and I'm not able to see out my dreams. I at least want to know that the kids perceived my message and were able to make something of themselves and able to take my message and use it and turn it into something positive and to to at least have a good life. I at least if I'm going to if I'm going to die or ever be a sacrifice, I want to make sure that my life made at least 5 million kids happy. There was I think at the core of his message a real sense of uplift out of depression, out of anxiety and wanting to connect with his listeners that a lot of uh, other musicians almost would find that like corny or something. Like there is something incredibly straightforward. All of his albums begin with sort of like a disclaimer. Yeah, I mean, like the top line in seventeen and on question mark uh, or the first the the intro track is a user's manual, so to, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, and kind of saying like if you don't want to hear this, you don't have to. But for the people that it's for, I want to help you and. I hope that we what we take away is like understanding the need for that and kind of looking at what his message was that was resonating with so many like very young people and why that was. And I think it's hard to know where this is going to go next because so much of his success and Lil Peep's success was really happenstance. They didn't have backing behind them in the beginning. It just was kind of this internet folk story of fans listening to these songs a bunch of times and pushing them up the Spotify charts. So I want it to to be a cautionary tale, but it, it just seems too soon to know where anything is going next and who can say. <sighs> who can <Yeah>. say? <laughs> Lindsay, thank you for joining me to help try to navigate this. Yeah, we tried. Yeah, we tried. <laughs> for having me. Yeah. Okay, so... Uh, switching gears, we are now going to talk about a classic punk rock album. Okay, so the 59 Sound, the sophomore album by the Gaslight Anthem, uh, this New Jersey punk outfit, is 10 years old this week. And to commemorate the 10th anniversary, they're going to be releasing a handful of demos from that album, which was really, well, like, it was a critical darling, I mean, so to speak. Uh, But my colleague, 
staff writer who normally writes about football, but occasionally screams his lungs out about punk music. Robert Mays is here to talk about it because he wrote an oral history on the band. Robert, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, man. I- I'm always ready to talk about this record and this band <laughs> with anyone that will listen and occasionally people that aren't willing to listen. So this is a nice change for me. Yeah, you did uh, accost me about this, about this oral history that you were writing, <laughs> um, which came about in a really interesting fashion. Could you talk about how you managed to, you know, like how the opportunity came about? I, I can. I, I don't really write about music. You know, that's not my my corner of the world here. But I love this band, and I'm a big music fan. And they have been gone for a few years, and they went away in 2015, and it was kind of a necessary step away if you'd seen them live that year, which I did. And the only reason they're kind of getting back together for a handful of shows is that it's the 10th anniversary. So when it was announced that they were playing Governor's Ball and, and headlining spots to play this record, I tweeted about it, and it was just kind of came about that... I guess that, you know, the, I know a couple people associated with the band, everything else, and they didn't know I was a fan. And they said, would you want to do this? They weren't really doing any other press for it. And I said, yeah, of course I'd want to do it. I mean, this is a chance to ask 30, 40 people questions I'd wanted to know the answers to for about a decade. And, and finding those answers was pretty illuminating and I'll say pretty damn fun at the same time. Okay. So what was like, when did you know that this was going to be an album that you're going to be playing back in five, 10, 15 years time? That's a really good question. I, I guess it was probably a few years after I heard it. You know, when I listened to it for the first time, it was in 2009, I was a junior in college mm-hmm. and a, a buddy of mine turned me on to it, you know, probably about six months after the record came out. And I loved the songs and, you know, backseat was instantly just hit me in the face. And I, I really enjoyed you know, songs like here's looking at you kid. I mean, I, I loved the writing on it and just combining that punk energy with some sort of Americana songwriting. It, it hit me right where I need albums to hit me, mm-hmm. but it was probably about three years later, maybe two, three years later when I was seeing them on the American slang tour and they would play backseat and it would just have the same feeling. And, and then I would see them four years later and when they played great expectations, it had the same feeling. And when those songs just failed to kind of fall away when I'd see them and when those songs failed to fall away as I'd just listen to music and when I had stuff in rotation at a certain point, every few months I listened to the 59 sound. It was one of those things where it it never changed. It, It was crystallized in a certain way in my mind. And I feel like that's how this record is for a lot of people. And it's why they're able to do this right now. Wait, so let's go back to the live shows you were talking about in 2012. What was so bad about them that they needed to take a sabbatical? It was 2015. And I think that one of the reasons is that they'd been touring kind of nonstop on. So what happened was they recorded this record and another record on a mid-tier label, indie label called Side One Dummy Records. Mm -hmm. And then after that, their contract with Side One was over. They signed to Mercury and they put out two more albums that were just different in scale, you know, different in resources, everything else. And I feel like they weren't really thrilled with the final album they put out and they toured it constantly. Mm-hmm. And talking to Brian, who is the lead singer of the band and the other guys, it, it just felt like they had been sapped of the energy, the enthusiasm, everything that made them want to do this originally. It became, you know, we we sold at 32, 58 tickets today, but you know, it wasn't as good as what we did yesterday. And when you're a band that started playing basements in New Brunswick, and that's just the energy you were raised on, figuring out how many tickets you sold at a 3,000-person theater is not how you want to spend your time. (laughs) And eventually, it just totally drained them. And I feel like I saw them a a couple shows late in that tour, one in LA and one in San Diego on back-to-back nights. And they were playing with against me, you know, right after uh, Transgender Dysmorphia Blues came out, which was a record that I absolutely loved. And the way that Laura Jane just looked on stage, I mean, they were blowing Gaslight off the stage in a similar way that Gaslight used to do to their support acts. Mm. And it's just one of those things you could tell that they were out of gas. 
listening to this album, it definitely sounds like the sound is just heftier and huskier. Like it sounds brawnier, I guess would be the word that I would describe. But you describe it. Yeah. Yeah. And also on those later albums that you would say that there's not really like a backseat. No, okay. and they've said that. I mean, that's something that they have said. They said to me that was really the only closing song they ever wrote, which is the last song on the '59 sound. And again, there's just an energy there that's really hard to recapture. It's of that moment for both the band and for both the music that they were trying to make, and it's hard to bottle that up again. And they're mm-hmm. very honest about that. Mm-hmm. This is a record that it loomed large for them as they made their other ones. It wasn't about topping it necessarily, but I think they understood over time that they found something and again, they bottled it up with this album that they couldn't with others. Mm. Yeah. I mean, like it was always going to be something they were going to, they were going to be trying to outpace basically, especially to other people. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of one of those things, the aesthetic that they had at this time, you know, what they were able to tap into as far as the sound itself and the influences, everything. It, again, it was just something that had been waiting to exist for a while and they didn't have that with the others. Let's talk about the influences for a second, just because, I mean, the influences of the stuff that was coming out around it, like I was saying, were completely different. Whereas the stuff that I was listening to were was all about like wearing high top Supras and skinny jeans and deep Vs or whatever. They're in leather jackets and pork pie hats singing about, you know, like drive-ins and it feels like an older album, um, a more mature one, I guess. And they drew con- comparisons to uh, Bruce Springsteen. I mean, like what what would justify that comparison aside from like them both being from New Jersey? I think it's just the depth and the storytelling elements of the writing. And that Brian is very much influenced by the Springsteen kind of side of things. And it became problematic later. But in this moment, I think it's very apropos. Mm-hmm. The other influences, though, are interesting. I mean, you have the Springsteen thing, obviously. But I mean, there was so much of an effort from this punk band in New Jersey to put out an album that is like Sam Cooke filtered through a punk record. Mm-hmm. That's what they wanted to do. I mean, that was kind of the choices that were made to make the album sound older. I mean, there's a slapback echo on his voice the entire record. And it's just a chance that, again, a punk band in 2008 wouldn't typically take. Mm-hmm. But he did it for a reason. And that is, again, all of those influences and the fact that they did that. The idea that the record is named after a sound from a specific amp that he rebuilt by hand. I mean, this is a group that understands the magic of a certain time period and wanted to do the best they could to capture it, even if it's not the world that this band originally comes from. Which of these demos from the, uh, well, I assume that you've already heard them considering how deep you are in, uh, which one is your, which one is your favorite? I mean, like it's high lonesome and and it's for a reason. Mm -hmm. I think the 59 sound is done. You know, it doesn't change almost at all. The changes in great expectations, which they wrote at the same time as the 59 sound also pretty much unchanged. Mm -hmm. And I think that just speaks to again, how these songs needed to exist. And Brian had been writing them, even if it was in his mind for a very long time. Mm-hmm. With High Lonesome, it's, it's close to what it eventually becomes, but the change is so important. In the original kind of chorus, it's very generic, and it's just kind of general thoughts about loneliness and whatever, and it never it wasn't working for them. And they were in the studio and trying to figure it out, and eventually Brian just said, you know what, listen, I know what I want to say, and I want to answer this question that was raised in Round Here by Counting Crows. It's the, the line where Maria came from Nashville with a suitcase in her hand. And the- Always kind of sort of wish I'd been like this And if I had this 
And it's just one of those things where it was important to him to kind of present this idea that what they were doing was not new. This was just a culmination of songwriting that had been happening for 50 years. It's just in American music. And it was important to him to define what they were before other people did. And I think that's kind of one of the things this band has struggled with for the last 10 years is that they've been defined and they've been explained through this filter of Bruce Springsteen and the clash and whatever else. And they never got to really escape that. And there's this fine line that they've tried to walk between influence and just general, I don't know, repeating. And that's tough to do. And I think that they were able to do it and thread that needle in such a way with this record. And it really speaks to how high the degree of difficulty was for what they pulled off. This is what I want to ask you for people that are listening that are kind of like me and maybe have not really gotten deep into Gaslight Anthem. What are some other stuff that they, they should check out in addition to the 59 sound? I think you should go listen to Sink or Swim. And just in terms of what the 59 sound eventually became, because it's a pretty stark contrast. I mean, Sink or Swim is a hard-charging album, and it, it's the element... So the drummer of the Gaston Anthem is just this hardcore lifer named Benny Horowitz, who was in punk bands in New Brunswick from the time he was like 14 years old. Huh. And that's what makes the, the band so interesting, is that you have... Benny, who's that kind of drummer, you have a guitar player whose favorite band is The Cure, and then you have Brian, who's obsessed with Bruce Springsteen and Noah's Redding. And it sees all these disparate elements that come together. And that's what the 59 sound is, but Sink or Swim is a little bit more on that punk side. Hmm. So you can really see just the general evolution between album one to album two. I mean, it's a change in sound, and it's a change in production value, but the original roots of it and just the DNA of it is there. And then from there, I mean, American slang again is a good record and you can, but you can kind of see where it's all starting to go. Mm. And that's kind of what makes this album so special is that it really is just this moment in time. And it that's feels what, like an inflection point. Yes. And mm. it just feels like something that couldn't happen again. And that's why it's so special. And you know, they've all said that. And the guy who co-founded the label that put it out said to me, when I think he said it best, he said, this record is not of a moment in time. It is a moment in time. Mm. And I think that's why 10 years later, uh, an album that sold 260,000 copies is an album that a band can headline Governor's Poll on. Wow. Yeah. I mean, like that's when you create a cultural moment like that. I mean, I'll just put it this way. I'm looking forward to Chief Keefe performing Finally Rich at GovBall in like 2026 <laughs> or something. There you go. <laughs> uh, Maze. I appreciate you coming by to talk about Gaslight Anthem with me. Well, to educate me on Gaslight hey, Anthem. I appreciate having the platform, my friend. So <laughs> don't worry about it. Thank you. Of course. Thank you so much for listening. Special thanks to Robert Mays and Lindsay Zolaz for joining me. Shout out my producers, Agi Ashagre and Zach Mack. And don't forget to check out our playlist that we'll be updating every week with songs we're listening to. Like, say, this week, if you want to just, you know, enjoy summertime and listen to, par listen to music that your parents would be drinking to. Maybe you should listen to some Evelyn Champagne King. I know that'll be on the playlist. You should also check out Jay Huss, just because I really like Jay Huss. Also, please rate and subscribe if you like the show. We really appreciate it. Peace. See you next week. Stay black, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We out.